0: In John chapter 18, we get to see God in a garden. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and during all the commotion, Jesus makes a request of those arresting him that you may not have noticed. He asks the Roman cohort to let his disciples go their way. And surprisingly, this request gives us a unique insight into the nature and development of faith. Welcome to episode 23, God in a Garden. Well, you've made it back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Congratulations. This is Greg Hall, and I need to let you know that my whole purpose in life is to get you to rethink things that you thought you already knew about the Bible. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why I drink my two cups of half-calf. It's why I stay up until at least 9.30 every night. I am committed to this. So much so that a couple of weeks ago, we launched the All-America Listener Challenge. (laughs) We are attempting to get listeners in each of the 50 United States. All of the updates on our progress are available at RethinkingScripture.com. And this week, we welcomed listeners in a number of different places. Fairfax, Virginia, Laurelton, and New York City, New York. And across the pond, we had a new listener in Huddersfield, which is a large market town in West Yorkshire, England. It is exciting to see the numbers growing, and I appreciate all the referrals that you're making to encourage new listeners. Well, we're gonna try something a little different this week. I've mentioned before that I taught through the book of John back in 2019, when I was pastoring here in Salem, Oregon. And the videos from that teaching are available for free at RethinkingScripture.com. And this last week, I went back and watched the video for the chapter for this week, John chapter 18. And let me just say, it's really weird for me to watch myself on video and not know exactly what I'm going to say next. (laughs) I mean, it's been long enough that everything's brand new. And the other thing is, when I originally taught this material, I came to some new insights about this chapter, insights that I had forgotten until this last week when I watched the video again. So I've decided for this week's episode to share some of the audio from back in 2019. So I'll play a little bit and then I'll share some present day thoughts, and that's how this episode will go. I hope you like it. So we're just going to begin with some of the audio from the beginning of the class about John chapter 18. This was recorded about a month after my 50th birthday. So let's listen in, see what I had to say. John chapter 18 is our chapter for the evening. Traditionally, we're talking about uh, these events happening on a Thursday night, uh, the arrest, uh, the trials happening over that evening, and uh, Friday morning at 9 a.m., Jesus is on the cross. Um, Now, there are different theories out there as to exactly when Jesus was put on the cross. They range, I've seen ranges from Wednesday to Friday and there's a lot of different theories as to why. It doesn't really affect what we're studying right now. Uh, the trial, the arrest, the trial, and this process, that's all the same in any account. What it does change, depending on what day it is, it changes the amount of time Jesus is in the grave. The debate, you can Google it, but the debate is out there and it's regarding whether you can consider a part of a day, a whole day, in Jewish thought. Because Jesus has a prediction, um, speaking in terminology, uh, typological terminology about Jonah, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, right? So to get him three days and three full nights, you have to kind of finagle when he goes into the grave because we know he comes out Sunday morning, right? Well, we know that the grave is empty on Sunday morning. I'll be speaking to when he may have come out later. But because um, Jewish days are different and we calculate our days differently. So, yeah. So um, if he went in on Friday night before sunset was in the whole day, Saturday, came out Sunday, maybe before sunrise. That's parts of three days. And uh, many people state it in the sense that... In Jewish thought, a part of a day was considered like a whole day. So he was three days in the grave, even though if he goes in on Friday night, it's really could be barely over 24 hours. I mean, if if he goes in right before sunset and he comes out right after the new day on Sunday, it's really short of three full days. So uh, you can Google that, though, and there are some good explanations. I've been through them all. I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily landed on that one just probably because I haven't spent enough time to try and research it out, but it's out there. Okay. And as we start into uh, chapter 18, verse 1, it says Jesus had spoken these words when he had spoken these words. What's that likely referring to? Previous chapters, right? Uh, Whether it was uh, just the part where he may have been walking or, uh, the whole thing, or maybe they were in the upper room for the whole thing. The previous chapters are what he had just uh, finished speaking. He makes his way, and here in John, it's just, uh, they make their way to a garden. But we know from the other Gospels that it's Gethsemane, which is a a garden of the olive press. And the analogy has been used often of just like uh, olives being pressed in an olive press, um, it was the place of the pressing, Jesus being pressed as well in a different way, in a, in a spiritual pressing. John chooses to include stuff that uh, other Gospels don't have. Uh, he skips the, the prayers that Jesus has about the cup, right, passing. Let this cup pass. But John alludes to it, you noticed, right? John alludes to it in 1811 he, when he said to Peter, put the sword uh, in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me. John hasn't spoken about a cup at all. He's assuming here that you've read another gospel and understand that language because he uses it without explanation as the others uh, have explained it. So he is dovetailing in with the other gospels. This is just another example of how John is careful to include things that he feels are important and then add additional things that the others don't include uh, along the way. A cohort was garnered and accompanied Judas on his way in. Now, it's said in the lesson that a cohort can refer is to up to 600 men, and that's um, it's a tenth of a legion. Is the research that I did, and legion numbers can vary slightly, so that we're not exactly sure. But I've also come across in extra-biblical literature the word cohort that's used here can also mean not just the full amount of men, but it can also mean a portion of the full. So uh, as I read this, to think about 600 men, and those of you that have been to Israel and understand the Garden of Gethsemane and the proximity to Jerusalem, and to have 600 men, uh, soldiers, come uh, to arrest, what, 12? Jesus and the 11? It seems a bit of overkill, Right? So uh, I don't know if there were 600. There could have been as many as 600, but it could have been a smaller group as well. Either way, uh, the interesting thing is that Rome was there because Rome really didn't, uh, Jesus really, I mean, Jesus was on their radar. He was a public figure. He had been around for the last few years. And likely they had a complete file on him, right? They knew exactly who he was. They knew what he'd been teaching. Probably had people following him around and They didn't necessarily have uh, any beef with what he was doing. So it's interesting that they're there. And likely what happened is the Jews sold them on the idea that this, uh, that he's number one, that he's dangerous for whatever reason uh, against Rome. And that he probably has a band of people that are willing to start fighting for him. Right. And that would threaten the safety of the city. And so that's likely the story that was told. And is that partially true? Yeah, they have have swords. (laughs) One of them pulls them, and uh, we're going to talk later. He hits the ear, but he wasn't going for the ear, right? Uh, I don't know anybody that pulls a sword and swipes somebody's ear off, except those people on the America's Got Talent, where they (laughs) do something like that. That's unbelievable that they're that good. But I don't, I don't think that was the case here. So likely a smaller group than 600 in my mind. Uh could be wrong on that. Uh, but the benefit of having the Romans there is it put them on notice. It put the, not just the army, but it put the Romans on notice, the whole court system, that uh, this man has been arrested. It's the nighttime. Uh, he's going to go through a series of trials during that night in the Jewish setting. And then in the morning, he'll be before Pilate. The Roman governor, so it puts them on notice that there's some business to be taken care of, even though this is one of the festival days, and we're usually uh, doing attending to other businesses. Jewish people, uh, we've got something for you. Be ready for them in the morning, and it also means that the Jews have a lot to do that night to get some charges to stick on him, so that they when they do go before the Romans, they can present it that way. Okay. Yeah, completely illegal. In rabbinic law, having a court, uh, in the middle of the night is an illegal process. So they're pushing this through. Yeah, at the midnight hour. So, and then we, we see when they do show up, we see Jesus going out to them, asking, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus. And he responds with, I am he. Uh, that's the English translation, but it's a, the he isn't there. That's why you would see it italicized in your English translation, if that's what you have, because it's not there in the Greek. The, the Greek is ego, a me, which is that name, uh, the Greek way of saying that name of God. It's the I am statements in the rest of John, okay? I am the vine, I am all those I am statements that we've been going through. This is another example of ego, a me. Uh, Jesus. Now, whether he was trying to quote that name and use it, uh, that can be debated, but um, it is in the Greek at least. He probably would have been speaking a different language, but in the Greek it's portrayed as him saying that. Yeah, it's it hinted, this him going out, Jesus going out, is kind of hinted in Acts uh, 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up, And look what Peter says. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you. So we're in Acts now. He's recounting the events that have happened in the last 50 days here in Jerusalem. The man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined, planned, and foreknowledge of God, you then nailed to a cross. Now notice the way he Peter says it here. This man who was delivered over, not by Judas, not by the Jews, but even the Romans, right? They're not in charge of this transaction. He's delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He's suggesting in that setting that this was the plan all along, that Jesus was in total control. And as we flip back to the John passage, that's kind of what we see. We, we see him saying who he is and what happens. Everybody falls back. And it doesn't really give a good explanation as to why. But the conjecture is that this is the power of very God himself shining through. And in other Gospels, we see uh, Jesus having comments like, uh, don't you know that I could just summon and get out of this? just like that. And so uh, we get a taste of that here. Okay. This is all going according to plan. Jesus is in total control. And I think we see that by him knowing all the things that were coming upon him. Verse four, he went forth. He took control of the situation and handed himself over. Welcome back. This is the modern day Greg back again. So we see that Jesus is in total control of the situation in the garden. Even though things don't seem to be going well, the 11 disciples are all sleeping. The only one who's not sleeping is gathering an army and betraying him. It reminds me a little of another time in scripture where God was in a garden and things seemed to go all wrong. The story of Adam and Eve has many of these same elements. And yet, even there, God was not surprised by anything. He was in total control of the situation. He had a plan. And that's exactly what we see here. God in a garden, letting events play out according to his plan. We'll get back into the 2019 teaching audio in a couple of minutes. But first, I'd like to introduce something that John the author does in his writing. Near the end of the first section in John chapter 18, in verses 8 and 9, we've got a couple statements there that I want to try and unpack a little bit. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. And then verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke— And then it quotes Jesus again, Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. And it's that second statement, verse 9, that I want to talk about just a bit. It's called an aside. And John uses them a lot in his gospel. And for a little insight into what an aside is and how they function, we're going to pull up an article by Tom Thatcher. It was written back in 1994, and it's titled A New Look at Asides in the Fourth Gospel. It was in Bibsac, Volume 151. And at the time he wrote the article, Thatcher was an instructor in biblical studies at Cincinnati Bible Seminary. He was there for nearly 28 years, and about five years ago, I found out he started Elemental Churches, an organization that comes alongside nonprofit organizations to help them thrive. I'll put a link in the show notes to his LinkedIn profile. So Thatcher wrote this article on what an aside is and how it's used in the fourth gospel. We're going to cover just a bit of it. He says this, an aside is a direct statement that tells the reader something. Asides are never observable events, but are interpretive commentary on observable events, commentary that reveals information below the surface of the action. Readers may receive information by observing what the author shows them or by listening to what the author tells them. Asides are always what the author tells. He goes on to say, because they're not events, asides do not advance the plot. Rather, the author uses them to guide the reader's interpretation of and response to events. Asides thus have a rhetorical function. And then as you get further into his article, what Thatcher does is he gives some examples, some categories of different types of asides that John uses in his gospel. The first category that he gives is a staging aside. And he said this may include references to space, time, objects available for use or climate. And an example that he gave is out of John 2, 13, which is just a simple statement that the author gives us. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, it just explains the setting, the space, the time, what's going on in the story. Another category of asides that Thatcher outlines is a defining aside. And it includes translation from like Aramaic to Greek or vice versa. And you might not even realize these when you're reading the text because they happen so naturally. We're used to them. But an example is in chapter 19, verse 17 of John's gospel. It says, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And it's that last part of that sentence, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, that is a defining aside that the author includes to help the reader understand a little bit about what's going on. There's another type of aside that explains action. And this type of aside may actually provide the reason or motive for an act or indicate its significance. Again, we're used to reading these. We may not have been used to calling them an aside. But in John chapter 19, verse 40, it says this, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And that last little sentence, as is the burial custom of the Jews, is an aside that explains the actions that are going on. The last category of asides that we'll be talking about today out of Thatcher's article is an aside that explains discourse and it may include a reason for what a speaker said or its significance. Thatcher says this, John, apparently concerned that the reader might misunderstand Jesus' words, explicitly decoded them, thereby giving the reader a marked advantage over characters in the story. I'll give you a few examples of this, and it'll become clear what he's talking about. The first example of an aside that explains discourse, we're going to go back to chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And it's where Jesus is in the temple, and it's the cleansing of the temple uh, story. Verse 19, And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And here comes the aside. The back door that allows the reader to understand something that the characters in the moment didn't understand, verse 21. But Jesus, he was speaking of the temple of his body. There are some other times where discourse is explained in John's gospel. We're going to jump to John 7, 37 through 39, where it says, now on the last Day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And here's the aside. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John, as an author, uses this technique, this aside technique, often, and he does it really well to let the reader know things that the reader needs to know to understand fully what's happening in the story. And here in John 18, verses 8 and 9, we have an example of an aside. Jesus makes the request to let the disciples go, verse 8, and then John gives the aside in verse 9. And that aside is to fulfill the word which he had already spoken of those whom you have given me I lost not one and there's something about this aside that was new to me back in March of 2019 so let's listen in and let my 50 year old self share a little bit more about this passage The other thing that I noticed this week, and this is going to take just a little bit of explanation as we go, but down here in verses 8 and 9. So after uh, a bit of uh, I am he and reconsidering the question Jesus answered in verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, my name's on your warrant, in other words, right? Jesus and the Nazarene. Let these go their way. And who are these? Yeah, it's the the 11 disciples, uh, not including Judas. Judas isn't a part of their group anymore. And it said in verse, says in verse nine, to fulfill the word which he spoke, that Jesus spoke. His request to have the disciples not arrested with him was to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoke of those you have given me, I lost not one. Where did Jesus say that? It was just the last chapter. Now, I'm going to walk you through a little bit of what's going on in my head regarding this, because I've read this, this fulfillment of I have not lost one of them. I've read that in terms of physical losing, like none of my followers have died a physical death. That's kind of how I've read it. And his acting or asking for uh, them not to be arrested. Is then, in turn, if I'm reading it that way, in turn, it's asking them not to be physically harmed, or go into a situation that would ultimately maybe lead to their death, right? Okay. And that's the way I've always read it. But then I went back and notice the word "before we go" in verse nine here. Notice the word uh, "of those you have given me, I lost not one." The word "lost" I've highlighted, and then uh, for a reason. Because if you look at the cross-reference, it takes you back to John 17, last chapter, verse 12, right? That's where the statement, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them, and what's the word here in the English translation that I have? Perished. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of them perished. What was it in John 18 that we just were at, the highlighted word? It was lost. Interestingly enough, two English words, one Greek word. It's the exact same Greek word. Here, it's perished, which kind of lends you to start thinking in terms of physical loss of life, right? If you perish. But perish can also mean spirit, be understood in a spiritual term. And in fact, to show you that, let's go back to, again, to the first place where this was used. Same terminology, John chapter 6, Bread of Life Discourse. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, same language, I lose nothing. This is the same as perished in John 17 and same as lose in John 18 that we've been reading. But that I do what? That I lose nothing, that nobody perishes, but that instead of them perishing, I raise them up in the last day. Raise them up from where? From the grave. And if this is the way you read that, if that's how it's supposed to be read, losing somebody, that they haven't been lost can't say, it can't mean that they haven't died. Because he says, I lose nothing, but I also will raise them up after they die. So this losing, in John 6 at least, has this idea from a spiritual nature, they have not lost the faith. They have not died a spiritual death. They are in eternal life. John 6. And when you go back to John 17, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, who's the son of perdition? Judas. What chapter are we in? Right here, we're in the high priestly prayer, John 17. Not one of them perished except Judas. What's wrong with that statement if it's a physical death? He's, he's gonna show up in the next chapter on the side of all those people that have died spiritually. (laughs) Right? So I'm understanding this word perish, the word lost in those terms. I told you that am I, I am he. And here in John 18, Jesus' request to not have his disciples arrested is not so much a request to save their physical lives. He's predicted that they will all die because of believing in him. In other words, he is asking them for them not to be arrested so that they will be preserved spiritually. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this question. What's going to happen if Jesus doesn't make this plea and they all get arrested? How long do you... uh, Number one, it could be that they just do a wholesale killing of all of them. Romans are known to do that. I'll I'll grant you that's an option. But given the timing with the festival and the difficulty they had just getting Jesus on the cross from a Jewish standpoint, I don't think they're going to push trying to get all 11 on the cross. Okay. So what's likely going to happen if they all get arrested? Probably, they're probably not going to die, but they probably will be held, right? They'll probably be incarcerated. And for how long? At a minimum. This is Friday night before the Sabbath of Passover week with First Roots, another festival day coming on. This is a busy week. How long are they going to be held? I, I would say at least until Monday. I don't see them letting, I don't see them killing Jesus on the cross. And then just letting these people out on Saturday when he's... No, they're going to hold them. And if they do hold them, what do they miss? If all 11 disciples are in a jail cell during this weekend, what do they miss? Well, they can't blame them for taking the body, so that'd be one benefit. Okay, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, <clears throat> okay, good. But what else do they miss? They miss everything. Not just the resurrection, that's part of it. But they miss everything. Peter misses his chance to deny Christ. Now, that's maybe a weird way to say it, but it's Peter's denial that leads to Peter's redemption, his reinstating later, right? And a further understanding of God's mercy and grace, this cocky guy that said, no, I'll never, right? He's brought down to a level where he can be helpful, (laughs) maybe. What else do they miss? I made a little list here. Peter didn't think Jesus was supposed to die anyway. We see that with the ear-cutting-off incident, right? Um, so Peter would miss, by being arrested, he would miss the pain of his three denials. Eventually, Jesus' restoration out of that. He would miss the foot race with John, the disciple, to the tomb on Sunday morning. Think about that. Think about missing that if you're Peter. And if you remember... John gets in and peers in first and then from another gospel, and then Peter runs in and he sees the linen wrappings and he sees that the head wrapping is separate, folded nicely over here and the others don't seem to be. He misses all of this. He misses seeing Jesus on the evening of that first day. On that Sunday, Jesus appeared to all the disciples. And do you remember what he did? Jesus imparted the Holy Spirit to the disciples that night on Sunday night. Now, he could have broken, Jesus could have broken into the jail or broken them out of jail. I mean, that happens in the book of Acts. So it could have played out differently. But I think in requesting them not to be wholesaled and locked up for the weekend, Jesus is ensuring that they would persevere in their faith and not lose faith and not perish in their faith or in a lack of faith Uh, What about John? John would have missed witnessing Jesus on the cross. Think about all of that, hearing all the words that Jesus spoke from the cross and all the scripture that he was alluding to when he quoted the first line of Psalm 22, a messianic psalm describing that scene. He would have missed, John would have missed Jesus entrusting uh, his mother to him, Mary, to his care. John would have missed seeing the empty tomb and the risen Lord as well. So, in John 20, t- verse 9, we're not there yet, but it's interesting. This is this is right after. Uh, so the disciple who had come to the tomb then also entered and they saw and they believed. So entering the tomb, they saw and believed. And then uh, John gives this little uh, comment. For as yet they, the disciples, specifically these two in this instance, for as of yet they did not, under- did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead they are not putting this together as it's happening. But it's Jesus that knows that they have to go through the pain of this weekend and come out the other side for their faith to be what it needs to be because they have a cup coming up that they must also drink. And they are not ready to drink the same cup that Jesus is uh, ready to drink. But they will have to do it. And as I thought about that, so that's, that's kind of a complicated presentation, but as I thought about it, I thought this probably also speaks to the development of everybody's faith, yours and my faith as well. And let me put it this way. Um, I often think when I'm presented with a difficult test in my life, right, that the best thing for me to do would be for God to put me in a room for the weekend and let me miss all the hurt and all the pain and all the difficult circumstances. That's the way I think. I think that's probably the way you think. That's human nature. We want to bypass the difficult. But it seems that Jesus often negotiates my release (laughs) for all those hard things in life, right? He says, no, it's not time for you to go hole up in the corner and miss all this. You've got to go through it. And he understands that coming out the other side, what? Coming out the other side, my faith, our faith, It's gonna be strengthened to a place where we are able to drink whatever cup it is that's on our plate, right? So it's gonna hurt in the short term, but it's gonna allow me to experience who Jesus is and how he works, and specifically, it will preserve my life. I will not be lost in the process. It seems kind of upside down, but Jesus often works in upside down ways. Some concluding thoughts and remarks that I wanted to include as well about Peter's use of the sword in cutting off someone's ear. So let's finish the episode with just a little bit more about that section of scripture. The four gospels, all four of them mention the cutting off of the ear, um, but only one of them includes the detail of the healing of the ear. Do you have a guess who that is? Which gospel? Yeah, it's Luke. And why? he's a physician. He's the only one that really cares about how everything gets fixed when it starts falling apart, right? So I thought that was interesting. Peter may have been uh, a little groggy. Uh, we know from the other Gospels that at the time he pulled the sword, he had just been woken up because it says in the other Gospels, Jesus was speaking this to them, waking them up. And as Jesus was speaking, they came. So you can imagine what's happened in, in the disciples' life. Well, they've just went through a Seder meal, and not to speak ill, but there are four glasses of wine served at the Seder meal, okay? So um, maybe that's a bit of why they were a little bit tired in the garden. Uh, they got a little nap in, and you know as well as I do, when you hit that REM sleep and then somebody wakes you up, it, it takes me about 10 minutes to, you know, I'd be cutting ears off too instead of... <laughs> Yeah, everybody's a little, everybody's a little angry for that first five minutes. So, um, yeah, so just, just so we know, this was likely not in, it was intended to be a lethal blow, right? And he just missed. Uh, so think about that. Think about that. He was, he was intending to kill somebody to prevent what is about to happen. That's very interesting. Well, that's all I've got for today, but that's not all I had back in 2019 for this chapter. You can watch the whole video, which covers content from the rest of chapter 18, on the website at RethinkingScripture.com. I know today's format was a little bit different, so thanks for hanging in there with us. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the things that took place when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and we'll do our best. I'll do my best to unravel the common misconception that Jesus was forsaken by his father while hanging there that day. Thanks again for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and as always, recommend to your friend the show that's sweeping across the land, the All-America Rethinking Scripture podcast.